Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Navara, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler and this week we welcome back into the studio our mendicant founder who has been busily completing his PhD, Aaron Bastani. Welcome back. Thanks, James. Uh, Hello, everybody. <laughs> How excellent that instead of uh, celebrating like a normal person, you're here instead. Um, obviously, you'll need to organise a doctoral blowout soon. It's a big deal. And uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. It is. I actually do have something of a headache. So if, um, if my cognitive and uh, yeah, my cognitive function, if I speak, my, you know, if I miss words, if my language is slurred, that's a... That's a mix of some very, very poor Spanish table wine that I drank last night and the fact that I didn't really sleep much in the last six weeks. So, yeah. But thank you. Yeah, it was, it was tough. The running was tough. But I'm very glad to be back. Yes, and we're glad to have you back. Um, now, given that you've spent the last few months thinking pretty exclusively about movements and strategy and political choices, I thought it would be a good idea for us to talk a bit about communist strategy in the 21st century. And obviously listeners can join in that discussion on the hashtag Navara FM. I guess we can start with some clarifications and definitions, maybe uh, some thoughts on that. I mean, obviously, I mean communist there in, in the very small C sense, probably the only way to talk about it, in fact, these days, I think. Uh, I guess that throws up a key question, whether there can, in any real sense, be said to exist a communist movement today. And I think so, although it... Uh, I think it is weak and conflicted, enthralled to old delusions and received opinions in a cycle of desperate and sort of ever-increasing, you know, increasingly uh, frantic renewal. So every sort of two or three years we get a sort of uh, uh, summit where people say, oh, we're going to renew the left or renew the mm -hmm. communist movement, uh, refound, as they said in Italy in, in 1991, right. just, just after the fall of the USSR. A communist refoundation that, of course, ended up getting uh, so few votes in the next election that it exited parliament entirely. Excellent refoundation there, guys. Um, but anyway, so it's, it's certainly at its weakest point, I think, since, since the, really the inception of the communist movement uh, and faces a world absolutely enthralled to capitalism. But I think not all hope is extinguished, and I would never want to push that idea. There are movements I would call meaningfully communist in the global south, again, um, weak and facing a world and governments that demand their extirpation. There is, I think, inarguably a collapse of communist movements in Europe and beyond. And we ought to ask the question mm. why. We ought to ask the question, thus, the collapse of the USSR in 1991, uh, 1990 to 91, uh, ought to have given some impetus to non-state communist movements, those that didn't found their politics on replicating the USSR. Mm. And I think we can say to some extent that it did. But only in the context of a generalised collapse of other left perspective, their coalescence around a sort of hollow capitalist meliorism you know there is no alternative we now live in the era of capitalist triumphalism all we can do is uh, is act as a kind of barrier against the worst depredations of capitalism if you speak for instance to to someone like mario tronti these days tronti of course the the founding theorist of of uh, one of the great dissident communist movements of the 20th century uh, operaismo um the the sort of italian workerism and everything that came from that you know tronti now says that he sort of thinks of the left as as a sort of necessary social partner to capitalism almost as if you know trade unionisms check the worst depredations of of capitalism really that's that's all you can hope for mm. and you know in a kind of uh uh, sort of melancholic rewriting of his history, sort of, oh, that's all I ever really hoped for. Well, that, of course, is a lie. Um, but but that's, that seems to me 
the situation, if we think in, in terms of big picture mm. that we're in at the moment, that's not to discount um, that there aren't things that happen on a local level that, that are meaningful and important. But, but in terms of you know, the, the, that sort of eagle eye view from you know, right the way up in the sky, um, that seems to me that the, the way we can see things as, as sitting. So I guess our starter for 10 is that in this context, what do we mean when we talk about strategy and is it a useful thing to talk about? Mm. That's a really great question. I mean, I think, I mean, we should do, we should, as an extension of this show, we should definitely do a show discussing the idea but also the practice of horizontalism because I think horizontalism is two things. I think it becomes an articulated set of practices um, expressed and aspired to by movements to come out the climate justice movement, the global justice movement, right? The kind of anti-authoritarian mm. left, mm. the late 90s, early noughties, which is itself actually really contingent on this environment you're talking about, the collapse of the Soviet Union, fall of the Berlin Wall, the effective um, kind of recognition that the great apparatus of the kind of 20th century communism, like the, the party formed the Marxist-Leninist party, the Social Democratic Party, not really going anywhere, right? The Socialist Party, not Social Democratic Party, sorry. Not really going anywhere. So I think horizontalism for these people is like a set of articulated ideals. But then I actually also think it's a set of emergent practices which um, are an outgrowth of new technologies, right? So things like affinity group organising actually is a kind of, it's just an organic form of doing that comes out of SMS text messaging. So you get people in, like, say, the student movement in 2010. They were organising in ways that resembled affinity group organising, right? So you had climate camp activists going, yeah, let's organise in affinity groups, and they were actually explicitly saying this. And then you had school kids organising in affinity groups, and they were like, what's an group mm. but the point was that the architecture underpinning these things was the same which was I think yeah primarily SMS and then what allowed these affinity groups to cluster around these poles of attraction within these movements time limited very specific student movement in that respect was very interesting right um, was social media but the, the primary technology underpinning was SMS so horizontalism is an interesting thing um, both as a set of practices and also as a set of articulated ideals. Right, now strategy. Where does strategy fit into this original question? I think too frequently with horizontalism, actually, there's a, a persistent evasion of strategy. Um, there's a complete disavowal of strategy because all, all you say, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm over-egging this a little bit, but I think there's definitely something to this where as a substitute for strategy, all you do is, in, is ensure leaderlessness. And then as the strategic imperative par excellence, I say par excellence, it, it can actually often look like the only one. So within, say, you can't cut or the climate movement or the student stuff, right? Rather than actually really substantive questions of ideology, strategy, they go, look, we don't have to do that. We just need to ensure that we're leaderless. If we have no leaders, it will just keep on growing, keep on magnifying, keep on intensifying. You know, this contentious thing, this snowball just get bigger and bigger and bigger and become an avalanche. You know, we'll discredit regimes, state, you know, we'll, um, uh, discredit uh, institutions of, of regime control, both ideologically and a number of other ways. Right? We keep on doing this stuff, right? And the point is, that has a number of shortfalls, right? It means you have no democratic oversight. It means that you can't adapt to new situations, shift in the opportunity structure. Student movement, look, between Milbank and day X3, between November 10th and de December 9th, every single organisational adaptation that happened, that was necessary and effective, happened, right? It was great. But then something changed after December 9th, right? You have a parliamentary vote, you lose 35,000 people, demos, you know, nailed. 
police repression goes up, campus uh, managements have a wholly different attitude to student protest. So clearly, then, you have to strategically reorient yourselves, right? You've got loads of people in Nick, loads of people with criminal records, people going through the court system for up to 18 months afterwards, in the case of Alfie Meadows, over two years. So in those conditions where things change so much, and that's, that's what politics is, right? It's adapting to shifting uh, concentrations of power, resources, and trying to redirect channel them in new ways. Um, the student movement after December 9th was like, hey, we don't need to do that. We just need to make sure we maintain leadlessness. And that was, I think, an effective substitute for really important questions of ideology and strategy. So I suppose I'd throw that back at you, which is an observation. Um, amongst seemingly horizontal movements, uh, the idea of leadlessness effectively substitutes for actually more concrete discussions about strategy, which are absolutely necessary. You can't win without strategy, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, Michael, I, I suppose the, the interesting thing you do here is to talk very concretely about uh, a particular heightened moment of mm-hmm. protest and strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, Protest is the wrong word, actually. It's a political moment. I, I, I think that's important. It's, it wasn't necessarily just a moment of protest. It was a, a moment that brought together all sorts of um, political grievances. It wasn't you know, simply a, a matter of the, desiring protest. This is why I think contentious but, politics is a really useful term, right? Yeah, it's like yeah, a yeah. spectrum that goes from uh, direct action all the way to revolution and riots. Anyway. But, but so, so you're using, as I see it, a, 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 a concrete moment and you know to talk about okay the the, the strategies that were evident here mm. um the the kind of received ideas sort of the way that people think mm. you know perhaps you know things they take for granted or, or believe to be axiomatic um but but it strikes me and say the forms of organization that arise from technology that is available to hand and simply the the way that human beings exist in social groups at, at, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the, the question I want to push is, is a bit beyond that, which is to say that, okay, that that is a particularly time-delimited moment, and there's a lot that can be learned from reading from it. Mm. But strategy, it seems to me, is, is, is a term about which I'm actually very ambivalent. Right. Um, but, but that is much wider than that. It, it's that, that kind of thing, I guess, you know, if you go back to, you know, there's a kind of Gramscian idea about, you know, um, hegemony. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, this is the, the thing that underpins, I think, a lot of the strategy of the left, certainly in Europe in the course of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the transformations in, in Italy in terms of the reception there, you get the rise of a kind of... Um, you know, a way of thinking about things that isn't actually so much to do with that as it is to do with class composition and thinking, okay, so how how is the working class made up? You know, what does that tell us mm-hmm. um, about the way in which we should respond? What are the what are the things that people do? Um, you know, either instinctively or intuitively, and, and in their workplace, and how does that inform what we should be doing? Uh, and these, of course, are, are, are modes of reflection, right? They're not, ju- you know, things don't arise, you know, just as a matter of, you know, in practice, suddenly a, a whole theory of, of, of action arises. You know, it's interesting, you know, Sergio Bologna says, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the role of class composition is always ambiguous, right? It appears to be a picklock um, that open, opens all doors, but there is there was always a question of hegemony underneath that mm-hmm. that was that was never quite articulated. The assumption, for instance, in the course of the 20th century, was that if your movement became strong enough, then the question would, would solve itself. Right. That doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. I, but so my my fear about talking about strategy and it's a question that always arises on the left in general and the communist left in particular it is whether it replicates rather 
you know, bad or unexamined ideas about power and political movement, how that works, whether we always have to deal with the question of, say, a centralised command, whether that idea is always present somewhere mm. underneath uh, underneath the question of strategy, that, that you have you know, a, a bunch of people who think about things and then tell everyone else what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this arrives sometimes, I think, in, in the present day when, you know, people say, oh, you know, let's reevaluate Stalin. Maybe what he did wasn't so bad and, or maybe it was just mm. understandable. Mm. Um, you know, and, and that, that is what passes for thinking big, right? Mm. And I, I think that is perhaps unwise. So the question then, I suppose, becomes, is, is strategy just a bad kind of thought? Is mm. it trying to look for shortcuts mm. around things that are, are actually much harder to do, mm. you know, to cheat um, in in the way that you do things, and, mm. and uh, you know, I think there's 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 some reasonable uh, objections to be held there. And I think, I mean, I think it's interesting in your response that you talk primarily about technology, right? And or, or you pay particular attention to technology because the the way I want to ask this question, or the way that I did frame it, is you know what a communist strategy looks like in the 21st century mm-hmm. um, and and that i think is 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 the way to way to to go on this i mean i would actually say that the 20th century is the great outlier and that communist strategy in the 21st century probably looks like revolutionary strategy in you know the 18th century mm. actually okay um, you know if you look at for instance right look at the french revolution you know so how did this happen right Clearly, it happens because there are changes in the organic composition of capital. There's massive underlying trends, shifts, which mean it happens, right? So, massive urbanisation, rising literacy, you know, a rising middle class. Essentially, the, the political apparatus of the Ancien Regime can't really sustain itself in late 18th century France, as we eventually find out as history tells us, right? But how did the ideas of the French Revolution become so widespread? Um, you know, I've talked a few times on the show before about, you know, the rise of the Jacobin houses and how these were effectively the great back channels of radical politics in 18th century France. Um, a back channel is, you know, I mean, you know, we've got Twitter, Facebook, so we think that everything has to be so publicly these days. But back channels are incredibly useful for political manipulation and, you know, being very savvy and smart about things. So back channels like Google Chat, right? You can have a one-to-one conversation with one person. And, you know, I could be having it with you right now. And uh, our wonderful producer here wouldn't know that we're talking to one. That's a back channel, right? It's not publicly discernible communication. So the Jacobin House was like these great back channels of 18th century revolutionary France. And they were the primary means of, you know, so movement diffusion. What does that mean? Movement diffusion is about diffusing ideas, concepts, practices. And that, for me, is what marks successful social movements is to what extent can they diffuse their practices and ideals and their principles? And those, I suppose, that's the thing I'm really interested in as an, as an activist anyway, is the ideas that are appealing to you, your beliefs, your principles, how do you best diffuse them, right? So whether you're an LGBTQ activist, whether you're a trans activist, you know, you know, I, I, could, I could apply all, many different, all these monikers, right? You know, a person of colour. It's about diffusing the ideas and practices that you want to see in the world, right? And I think the technologies and the means by which you do that haven't really changed to what you see in the 18th century, which, you know, 18th century, how did that happen? It happened in one-to-one communication, in the 20th century, it was one-to-many communication. I mean, this sounds kind of like Clay Shirky, really kind of yeah, very I mean, I, I, liberal media theorist stuff. But I think we, we're seeing a big return now to one-to-one, one, many-to-many communication. Many-to-many is a wholly new phenomenon, right? Many-to-many forms of communication with regards to the diffusion of ideas and practices. So 
I'll return to that, but that's my thing, right? So diffusion's the great, the great strategic imperative, I think, of 21st century politics, yeah, more I than mean, some big choreographed, omnivorous program. How do we get everybody <laughs> to accept that? I just think that's kind of ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly when we're talking about the 18th century, I think it's an interesting one, you know, partly because, you know, I've, I've done some writing recently where I've pointed out, you know, the, the, the links between uh, you had at the time all these radical ideas and stuff like Rousseau or whatever mm. distributed by uh, printers who at the same time were distributing pornography and right. gossip mm. and stuff like that. And the appetite was for both of those at once. So the, the, the ferment that happened before the French Revolution is very much about sort of currency of storytelling and you know, uh, uh, you know these, these ideas about the, the illegitimacy of monarchies spread in ways which were n- not particularly high-minded, right? right. You know, it's, it was, you know, the stories of the kind of orgies held by Marie Antoinette in, in It's high low brow. Is it what, yeah, <laughs> but they were they were printed by the same people yeah. and it wasn't just a question of market appetite it was mm. held that you know they circulated in the same catalogs it mm. was like these, you know, people would be interested in both of these things anyway I mean, in terms of the 21st century i think i guess my you know i think i think obviously we stand at a point where where we have the inheritance of the 20th century behind us and we mm. actually have to deal with that right mm. i mean that's the that's the thing um obviously there there, there seem to me to be th- three factors that, that that we have to look straight in the face. One is, you know, revolutions in, in technology, right? Mm. Whatever subsequent revolution that makes in productive techniques, class composition, um, stuff like that. That's, that seems to me is essential. It, it, you know, it means that, that we should test our theoretical models against the way that production works now and be, be prepared to junk them if, if they don't, you know, if, if, if they don't quite work. Mm. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's important to look at, at those changes in, in technology and go and say, actually, the, the other thing about it, of course, is that we can't fight purely in defensive terms, right? To say that, okay, like, that, that's, that's stop this and, and try and freeze um, capitalism, as it was, say, in the middle of the 20th century uh, and defend that kind of organisation of labour, which is a, a sort of very conservative left argument. It's one I think fails because it fails to stake a claim on the future, which is much, much more interesting. I mean, when people say that you or I are utopian... <laughs> I mean, actually, that is the single most utopian, and it's ahistorical, you know, it's not even utopian, it's just ridiculous. The idea that you can defend a specific historically contingent moment into eternity, I mean, it's, yeah... So that's utopian, right? Yeah. So actually, I think there's a far more realistic politics that we tend to discuss. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean, the, se- the second question here is, is one that ties into it, right? Which is one of climate and resource. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, resource wars are going to be a big feature of the 21st yeah. century, I think. Um, and we find ourselves, I think, trapped behind the ideas of a sort of state communism predicated on an infinity of resources. Mm. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a persistent feature of left ideologies in, in the 20th century. It's inherited um, in, and sort of unexamined in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, you know, we have... On the other hand, a kind of horizontalism that converges towards the centre in, ter- in terms of the actual politics that articulates mm-hmm. a kind of mm-hmm. green Keynesianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there seems to me uh, only in very limited ways a, a kind of communism articulated here, very often a kind of communism of scarcity, mm-hmm. um, which has its own problems, I think. It has its own problems in sort of being willing to accept a kind of you know, determinate death of a large proportion of the human species um i'm not i'm not down with that obviously um the third matter i think is is one in in, in the way you know is, is a rather more difficult one and it's in terms of the way human beings and the, the way that the human beings conceive of themselves has changed and and it's still with identity i think 
Um, I think we can we can talk about the last few decades in terms of you know a rise in the political experience of individual identity, which mm-hmm. is not to say you know that rather false argument you know oh, any talk about identity is coterminous with neoliberalism, but it is perhaps to say um, you know that rise happens at the same time and therefore is very easily co-opted by it. Right. Um, so any communist movement has to deal with the fact that people. Ex- experience the world not exclusively through their relation to work and its exigencies um, but through their experience of life outside it ever more so i think Uh, and what i guess needs tackling is the idea that politics is an act of changing the face of power so that it more accurately reflects um those it it rules and exploits you know this kind of politics of representation but this means i think we need to uh, change our understanding of what class is and how it works i.e we need to think about how the working class comes to be composed again Mm -hmm. uh, how the experience of class is universal and also particular uh, the common the commonness of exploitation but the particularities of its modes of impact the severity of its impact being unequally distributed the kind of psychic injury it does you know, there, there is extraordinary feminist writing on this for, for throughout the course of the 20th century um, so so this may sound abstruse but i think it's also eminently pragmatic it's it's asking the same kinds of questions mm. um, that, that fe- a lot of feminist work has been doing um, for, for many years you know trying to think about that as a kind of co-research almost mm-hmm. um, so, so thinking in this way I think uh, allows us to articulate a politics out of those experience uh, which takes us you know which will take as its same kind of the abolition of that mode of categorical distinction right mm-hmm. that says you know okay you know one of the things that happens here is that it, you know th- this kind of division works um, you know partly as, uh, as a way of creating class in the first place mm-hmm. um, so, so that I think is the, the you know one of the things we mean when we say communism speaks the language of universality and it speaks the language of universality not by crushing difference into one figure of the the white male worker it does Mm. precisely the opposite it says you know there is a universality of experience that that nonetheless is differentiated particularly but 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 to overcome the way the world is set up at the moment we need to 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 think about universality in that way and it's very difficult Mm. it's very difficult um so so those are the three things i think we have to encounter Mm. um the thing about the sort of um identity politics somehow mirroring a new kind of, you know, Boltanski and Chiapello networked capitalism. I mean, obviously that depends on what you think is the agent of history, right? If you think that the exclusive agent of history is capital, if you think capital is what then defines labour and, as a result, identity, um, social formations, right? I mean, that's a classical... I don't think this is not what Karl Marx believes, right? He does, He's not this determinist that says, yeah, the, the superstructure of... I- the entirety of ideology, all human social relations are an outgrowth of the economic base. To some extent, that's true, right? But then that would then say that then you, that, then you it's impossible to have a working-class movement, right? Mm. Because there's two agents in history. Yes, there is capital, <laughs> but there's also labour. And so that that is inverted within a lot of the Italian worker mm. stuff, right? The Tronti's what they call his Copernican inversion, right? So he says, actually, look, it's not capital that's the agent of history; it's labour, and that's not actually an innovative, original idea. That's arguably there in Adam Smith. That's arguably there. Well, it's certainly there in Marx. Um, although it's not as explicitly stated, obviously, it is, as it is by Tronti. So this idea that oh these new kind of activist practices, conceptions of one's identity are necessarily contingent upon, you know, capital. I think that depends on your idea of who guides history. I mean, I'm, mm. I mean, I'm going to be quite moderate and say it's probably a bit of both, right? 
Um, but there is clearly a correlation between the rise of a new kind of capitalism and new activist practices, and they're called the new social movements, right? The new social movements of the 1970s. Um, and, you know, there, there's the, uh, you know, the, so the Italian operaia say, well, look, 68 and all that stuff, that's then internalised, recuperated um, within a new form of network capitalism and how it seeks to ideologically represent and reproduce itself. So Thatcherism, Reaganism, is essentially built upon the same energies which underlined 68, 69. Look, 68 in Italy lasts from 1969 to 1977. Mm-hmm. It's an eight-year, nine-year-long process of something, you know, a level of political contention that's maybe a few rungs below civil war. It was pretty serious. So that, that's indisputable, right? And that's a good conversation to have. I think, I, think, I think Fisher puts it incredibly, I'd say, lazily, analytically not very rigorous, and also quite insulting to people for whom these ideas are very important, right? Um, then secondly, uh, this idea of, um, you know, look, a lot of people have been responding to this kind of idea of fully automated luxury communism, right? And they say there's loads of good criticisms and critiques to be made, and that's the point of an idea becoming refined and better or being disavowed. And so actually, you know, that's how progress is made, right? That's, that's the point of discussion, debate, deliberation, absolutely. But one idea which I, I simply would not, under, under any uh, conditions, say is valid, right, is the idea that... Um, is the idea, sorry, my brain's a bit slow. My brain's a bit slow today. Is the idea that um, is the, the idea that capitalism is going to be limited by climate change? I mean, mm. of course it's not. So when I say, hey, there's this alternative of fully automated luxury communism, people go, well, look, you've got these other. There's resource resource problems. There's climate change, etc. Cetera, et cetera. All true, but if you think that any of those things are going to stop. You know, capitalism expanding mm-hmm. to other planets beyond the Earth's environment. I mean, you're very, very. The, the alternative is not this and a kind of slow demise of the European Union, the Japanification of the world economy. You know, capitalists will want to revivify profits, right? And they're going to do that through what I've talked about being space capitalism. So, resource extraction beyond the world's, you know, beyond this world, et cetera, et cetera. Look, and here's a great quote. This is from Karl Marx, right? And this is from the Communist Manifesto. This is about capitalism and how it represents, quote, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of of exchange. It, the bourgeoisie, is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he, here in the 19th century, has called up by his spells. And these spells in our lifetime in the 21st century, we literally, these spells are going to look absolutely unbelievable, right? You're going to see a global south, you know, much of it really adversely affected by climate change dramatic declines in crop yields uh you know places like bangladesh you know effectively lots of it underwater right at the same time there's going to be you know uh, peter diamandis and elon musk and these guys behind google schmidt and uh you know bring right and they're gonna be like they're fun they're already investing in asteroid mining right they're already investing in really amazing technologies um so that's the alternative, right? It's it's a it's a really nasty. It's taking all those all these technological advances, and it's an even more nasty, more pernicious, more uh, socially and economically unequal world than the one we already face. Right? So yeah, that's 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 the, and that's really important. I, I mean, the, I guess the thing to say here is that in terms of the projections of what capital can do um, and and how it can deal with climate change, is, is to say, look, that there's not you know one of the things that that the Occupy movement did that was you know, good, mm. um, is to say, is, is this figure of the 1%, which is not, not the same as the capitalist class, well, it identifies that there is a certain sort of um, 
uh, you know, oligarchical elite within the capitalist class, these are even smaller than the mm-hmm. capitalist class, mm-hmm. um, that, that have at their disposal, you know, uh, uh, such... Uh, intensive capital resources that uh, they begin to distort even the practice of the capitalist class itself, mm. um, and so and we should think about that you know quite 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 explicitly. But it, what this means, I think, in terms of uh, of development in regard to climate change, is that the way that capitalists can deal with this and survive it is to is to sharpen the inequalities of development globally anyway, right? It's to say, okay, you can lay waste to like 80% of the planet, but probably, you know, technologically, you can, you know, have a few walled cities somewhere that, you know, will more or less flourish on the back of, you know, what is, you know, widespread, you know, extermination and certainly uh, kinds or types of slave labor. Mm. So so that's a possibility. That's a, you know, that's right. a way of dealing with it. And, you know, face of that possibility, you know, it does suggest to us that perhaps the articulation of a communist politics that deals with the future is quite important. Right. Um, because, you know, I, I it's kind of a grim world to live in otherwise right um so i mean i I guess the the thing to go from here is 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 i just want to sort of change direction slightly rather than looking dystopia in the face which i think we do often enough right um is to say okay well we have certain assumptions about the way in which political change takes place Um, and those, those assumptions are very often evident in in the way that we organise or, or the way in which you know we, we choose to interpret events. Sometimes you know you can be sitting there and looking at something and go, do you know what? I I was wrong. Now, okay. Obviously, obviously, this never happens to me. Obviously, <laughs> but but no, no, no. I mean, you, you can sit there and go, you know, actually, you know, it turns out that that I was I was wrong about the, these things. So I guess you know, my, my question, my next question is, is you know. Uh, is is I think we can both answer this. And mm. what have I been wrong about in my assumptions about political change mm. and how it happens? Mm. Um, Do you know what's that first? I can. I mean, I can start. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, the one of the questions is about one's relation, I guess, to mm. what you could call the rest of the left. Mm. Now, obviously, in some sense, I seek the abolition of the left. Uh, insofar as there is a left that takes itself to be the responsible agent of truce with capitalism, um, or you know its better management, um, and this is operative, however, I think, really at the level of ideas, um, and at the level of say political leaders of those tendencies. So you know the, the you know people who are functionaries in the Labour Party or whatever. Um, and as a person who is who is prim- you know primarily, or who spends a lot of his time thinking. You know, in terms of ideas, you know, in, in terms of you know, the, the operation of ideas and how they work, you know, I can tend to overestimate um, the the adherence that people have to these kind of ideas and the the reason that people um, are affiliated with tendencies that bear those ideas. Because in practice, I think at the level of people, people tend to be much more pragmatic and their ties to things are generally more complex than than we tend to allow. Mm. So it's not perhaps that 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 one remains. And of course, you know, membership in sort of you know. Political parties tends to be a, a really interesting uh, way of thinking about this. You know, it, 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 I think a lot of people are members of the Labour Party because they have bad and wrong ideas mm. about the way things work. But I think also a lot of people are members of the Labour Party out of historical attachment out of a sense um, that there is nothing else out of a sense that it, it is a bulwark against the worst of things it's also that there is there is still and we can tend to underestimate this a perduring 
culture in this country of laborism mm. um, that has a sense of history and a tie to a world that is vanished, mm. um, but that promises its reappearance. And there's also you know a series of, of cultural practices that play into this. It's one of the the things. Again, I talk about Italy a lot at the moment because I've been reading a lot of sort of Italian uh, the history of Italian workerism for reasons that will become obvious um, in I hope in the next few weeks. Um, th- I think of you know what someone like Lucio Magri, who is uh, an Italian communist, mm. says about the PCI in the 1950s. He says, you know, if the PCI were as gloomy and you know, uh, you know, merely militant an organisation as it were painted, it, it would be hard to explain why it has one and a half million members. Yeah, and it was the biggest it, communist party in yeah, Europe, right? And it, you know, it has it has these members because it, you know, it, he says, look, it was possible to have have you know a few lira in your pocket and yet still have a good time because. You, you had a sense of sort of social belonging and actual social activity mm. within this organisation. You know, the Carabinieri were worried about the PCI because they had nights that weren't just, you know, political speeches that had dancing and, you know, you would go to the house of, you know, the, the workers' palace in, you know, your, your local town and, you know, have a night out there mm. and, you know, and, 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 and you would also have a sense that you're being useful to a movement in, in ways that, that, that are not necessarily visible these mm. days. So I think, you know, very often I'm, I can be wrong about that kind of thing. Can I get back to you about the Labour yeah, thing? Because yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a I was a, a member of the Labour Party um, until 2010, and while I was a member of the Labour Party, I, mean, I came from Bournemouth. I'm from the south. This is something actually I think is really over- I've said this a few times, right? I, I, it's something I share with Owen Hathley a little bit. Is that although his his history is rather different because he came from a family of leftists, I didn't, right? You know, my you know my dad came to. England, he was undocumented for a while, but then his first legit job. This is funny because people go, Oh, you're half Iranian, so your dad must have been in the two day party because you're a leftist. Two day party was the Communist Party. And I go, No, he, his first legit job was a security guard, and he, he lied and said that he'd been a member of SAVAK, which was the Shah's secret police, to get a job. You know, it was about being very predatory. So I, I find that quite funny. Anyway, so I had no history of leftist politics or, you know, organisational affiliation in my family. You're in Bournemouth. There's no... I mean, maybe this has changed now because of the way that digital media allows the spatiality of political participation to change somewhat. But there was nothing else, right? So you want, you want to see something better than this. You want to be part of something bigger than yourself. So where do you go? And actually, at the time, there was really only the Labour Party. And that was in... You know, that's in the south of England. So that wasn't attached even to, you know, a history of class struggle as that is in the north, right? Or even Labourism, which is obviously inherently uh, attached to unions in this country. You know, there's never been... I think in November... This is what was significant for me about November 30th, 2011, right? You have a national strike, quite big, a couple of million people. Um, demos across the country. Now, that was a demo organised, I think, by the local Unite in Bournemouth, Unite in Unison, and it was like five, 6,000 people. And that's when I went, wow, there's actually the basis here for a, a strong labour movement in places like Bournemouth. That's quite interesting. And the point was that hasn't happened since, right? Because, look, the Labour Party and these organisations don't really mm. want it. Yeah, because yeah. that would mean that you actually empower these. Empowerment's such a, a flaky word, right? But it basically means that you would allow a local branch to be quite autonomous. They might even be able to control their own funding. They might even be able to take their own, you know, work under their own initiative to, you know, uh, get more members and actually do things for those members, right? Rather than seek to... Um, 
allow the perpetuation of relatively centralized organizational bureaucracies because that's the iron law of oligarchy right what does that mean it means organizations are set up for a reason after a while they no longer seek to achieve that aim or that objective but simply to uh, perpetuate and expand the organizational resources and the bureaucracies which they have and that's the that's the union movement that's not me being you know nasty and that's most organizations most bureaucracies work like that right Resonance to some extent works like that. Navarra, if it ever became a paid thing, you know, there's that there's that inclination you have to keep your eye on. You go, mm-hmm. Why were we set up? It wasn't to perpetuate ourselves. There were certain ends, objectives in mind, which we were set up to achieve, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm down with that. Yeah, I agree. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think there are a couple of other things that, that I, I think are tendencies in thought that I, I have ceded to sometimes that I think are dangerous. I think it's odd because there's sometimes, you know, um, this thing that happens in practice, which is, you know, the, the kind of sense that one believes one thing but, but behaves as if another thing is true. You know, sometimes, it, you know, we can behave as if... Uh, you know, communist politics is always simply there to act as a kind of pull on the mainstream to be a little more honest. And I, I think that's a failure and that, that's really, really danger, uh, dangerous, in fact. Uh, I, I, you know, there's also, I think, you know, I, I think it's right to personalise politics, but it's very dangerous to operate purely at the levels of persons, um, which is to say, I think we must find some way of listening to voices from across the movement, um, I'm using that word a lot, and, and partly it's a fudge because the, the, you know, the question of what one means by the movement is is an interesting mm-hmm. one. But but to listen to voices, you know, across Europe and across the world, and we used to have ways of doing this, and uh, actually we now tend to be pretty bad at it, despite the communications technology at, at our disposal. There's also, I think, you know, the the danger in terms of like whether one should make politics uh, at the level of ideas so when you're you know trying to figure out um, a theoretical framework to understand what you're doing and um, to understand what's happening in the world whether that that you know to avoid that becoming a relation of sort of ideological policing and vitriol mm. You know, I think this probably is an unpopular opinion. I think you know, argument and reason are necessary. Um, and but you know, it's not. It's I don't agree that, that one should you know grant you know one's enemy a place at the table to, to to argue and reason with them as if they were worth anything other than extirpation. Yeah. But um, you know, within the movement, I think I think we have to grant each other, you know. The possibility that 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 I myself might be wrong, mm. um, and that also whoever I'm talking to probably has mostly the same political commitments as right. me, and and is undertaking that honestly. Now that's not to efface, I think, the reality that that there are power struggles, that there are you know people who are motivated cynically. But but you know I think we we have to hold on to that and, and you know that that notion that that you can have a discussion right um and i think that is important can i just respond to this yeah. i mean that that level of i think i mean i've experienced it right um and i've probably i've probably done it myself to other people i'm sure I yeah have. god knows i have yeah right um and that level of personalization what what, what in reality is a every is oh the personal is the political yeah this is the quote right it's uh 1969 it's uh hanesh right mm-hmm the person is the political, yeah. And then next is comma, and the political is the personal, 
right? That's the point. They're mutually constitutive, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, right, all my personal relations are really political. Yes, they are. But the point is that also uh, political apparatus, like the state regimes, have consequences and affect, you know, things that are far uh, 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 microscopic as opposed to just purely macroscopic, right? So that, that's, I, I, everyone always says the first bit of that statement. Yeah, the, the person is political. Yeah, and the political is political. And that's the, anyway, so that's one thing. So I think we really personalise a lot of what is essentially political difference. Now, why do we do this? I think, again, a lot of that's contingent on changes in technology. And where do these movements look? From, um, from people of colour United States following you know, several very high-profile, this happens on a weekly basis, several high-profile murders of young, uh, young black people by the police, there's been a massive movement around that. You see the 15M, you see You Can Cut, the shooter movement. Now, these are what you would call in the literature... This is connective action, right? Now, I'm not going to go into some great depth about how that's different to collective action, but it basically finds scale through the intersecting media networks of its participants, right? And they activate already pre-existing offline networks of friends, colleagues, co-workers to participate primarily through online media, right? So that's kind of ba- throwing away Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell, saying, that, oh, you're clicktivism. But the point is there's a really clear relationship between on and offline media and this stuff. And so I think what happens is a movement that's going to scale through pre-existing personal networks, the minute there's a failure, well, of course you personalise the failure. You mm-hmm. go, this, the reason why this movement failed is there's this person and that person and this person, because that's how it scaled in the first place. And I think that's actually a big, that's a big feature of movements that scale primarily through the intersecting networks of social media, i.e. Facebook and Twitter. I think that people will inevitably personalise personalize failure or inertia so I, I guess the other thing to bring in here is is to say that like, look, the, the other things that that phrase did was was to to bring it to say that look there is a there is a sphere that was unconsidered in politics right. at this point right which is to say that you know <laughs> you know the whole history of feminist activism was to, to continue to stake a claim to things that you know were considered non-political mm. but the other thing it does that i think is quite interesting and it's a strength i think of feminist work is to is 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 that it points out that look the the politics is felt personally is that you know i i it is not merely an abstract problem when my boss withdraws work from me it is something that is felt you know that that, that operates at the level of of of, of, of personhood so I, I want to you know, say one thing else and then, and then move on, which is to say that the, the danger I find, in fact, particularly in myself in, in terms of the way that I conceive of political activity and one that, you know, has, has led, you know, to serious physical and personal exhaustion is a, a kind of, you know, blunt um, actionism, sort of, uh, you know, bad workerism, as it were. You know, and I think if, if, if we conceive... Um, that we operate from each according to his abilities, etc., then we should understand that a genuine political movement will, will, pe- will require people to do that, i.e. things at which they are good, rather than all become sort of identical organisers. Now, obviously, all communists should be able to organise, they should be able to organise where they work, it should be our mm. lifeblood, we do not do enough of it. Mm. But it should also recognise that some people, for some people it is not a strength, and, the, and you know, and the production of propaganda, the, you know, the, 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 the creation, you know, the, the act of thought... Um, you know the the act of um, you know childcare. Mm. These are th- these are all things that are valid and necessary parts of a communist movement um, that 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 help it as much as you know uh, <laughs> operating uh, you know simply you know. O- 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 
on that level and, and, and in that way and you know I, we, so we, I think we must also recognise that it's you know that it's not some people's strength uh, and a movement must also also you know think it needs to imagine it needs to give itself hope it needs to give itself rest right no that's final point's very true I'd like to return to that but this idea that yeah we can't all be you know sort of political I mean, of course right if you look at look there's a, I can't remember it's an independent trade union in Turkey They're set, they, they were talking about set, sending several thousand members to the canton of uh, Kaban in Rojava um, Syrian Kurdistan, one of the three cantons, to help in the reconstruction uh, of, of, yeah, essentially the city, the town, sorry, after the withdrawal of ISIS. This is very recent, right? ISIL, rather. Um, and that's, you know, it's construction workers, plumbers, electricians, and these are communists going to help Kurdish comrades, right, rebuild this city. Now you think, well, that's, that's a movement, right? If you've got nurses, mental health care workers, builders, electricians. You know, it can't just be young graduates who are, you know, good at media. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that was basically... You know, look at... That was based. I mean, this is a whole other discussion. But, like, a lot of these highly networked movements... I mean, where they succeed is clearly where they exceed that, right? But something like you can cut a climate camp. Yeah, it was primarily sort of young, you know, yeah, again, white activists. I mean, most people in the UK are white, so right? it's a bit different to the US because US is a majority-minority country. Um, but... You know, young white graduates who are like, yeah, good at me, good at media, and they go and work in the third sector. I'm sorry, that's not the basis for like a mass movement. I mean, I'm not slagging those people off, right? But you, need, you evidently need to have more than that on offer, right? Yeah, I think this is interesting in that it brings us into the question of massification and the question of you know mass organisation um, and, and what the role of a mass organisation, if we need one, would be these mm. days. Um, you know, it, it, if there is one, I think it would look nothing like the organisations that we've had up until this point. Um, it would perhaps be looser in terms of you know how one affiliates or regards oneself as part of it. I said on a show with Emma Dowling recently that one of the things I think that we do tend to underestimate is you know how much it's important for people to feel part of things you know that affective dimension Mm. it it reminds me again using an italian example of the establishment of um red aid socorso rosso in 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 italy in you know middle of the 20th century which was not you know just you know know, students activists it was you know uh lawyers it was doctors it was you know people who extended across the professions in that sense so you had you know doctors who, who regarded it as part of their their profession and part of their politics to explain to people um, who are coming to them okay like here's how we can patch you up but it's capitalism that's making you ill do you want a sick night for work um, you know that kind of thing mm. so that that sort of complete reorientation of the way you think about uh, what you do mm. as directed in that way again with lawyers you, you know the, the lawyers operate uh, God we need more lawyers really uh, well I mean and this is the thing really is that the lawyers saying you know okay look we don't think justice can be achieved um, until you know it's proletarian justice mm. but what we can do mm. is help the movement in this way or in that way mm. or, you know, so, and so that I think is important I don't think everyone should become a lawyer but no, it would no, be no. nice to have a few more look I had a good lawyer and if it wasn't for a good lawyer pff, I would have been, I would have gone to Nick for two years yeah, put it that yeah, way yeah, yeah. I need, need, I, need I say more so i guess like, it, it <laughs> we need more of them right basically no i agree i mean i guess in that sense there's always all it is to say is that we shouldn't be scared of massification generalization in that sense it's not a question of coalition building or whatever you know it's, it's you know i always say you know think of what you know all of us have done in like in our unions and how you 
build alliances with people who believe very different things to you do, you know, in the mm. service of mm. a goal. Mm. And obviously that, that shouldn't be, you know, oh, don't challenge people's po- political opinions. If I think people are wrong, and tell them why I think Absolutely. they're wrong. But, you know, the, the, you know, the, the point here is, is not to go like, you're wrong and I can't work with you. Obviously there are, there, there, you know, there are red lines here. There's there's the question of safety. You know, there are there are people I think we shouldn't organise with. Mm. It's also the question of capacity. You know, it's an interesting quote, you know, the, there's an organisation that I have a great respect for um, that begins all their meetings by by asking, you know, by going around people saying, you know, what is your capacity at the moment? The organisation then functions on people going far beyond their capacity, mm. but I guess at least the question is asked. Mm. And I think, you know, that is the thing we have to recognise, that people often go beyond their capacity. It's mm. difficult in that sense. Um, can, I, but, can I respond to this idea yeah. of organisation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea that, you know... There's a good literature on this. Uh, it's a shame it's not popular literature. It's, mm-hmm. It still remains an academic literature, which is about organisational change in the digital environment. And you have this kind of thing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of a lot of listeners, or quite a few listeners, anyway, would have heard of a guy called Clay Shirky. He's a popularised a lot of this stuff, but it's also quite banal and sort of silly. But I suppose if you're gonna have if you're gonna have a popular literature, that that's an inevitable feature sometimes, I guess. Um, you know, here's the thing about organizing without organizations, and this has become something of an ideology in I'd say the movements actually post crisis movements, right? He wrote that book in 08 and actually that was absorbed. You know, we can kind of dismiss some of these thinkers, but actually I think he's had a massive impact on activism from Russia to the United you know anti Putin process in 2011 Arab Spring, you name it, right? And this thing about organising without organisations. Now, look, just because the digital environment allows organising without organisations, that that's not an answer to, A, is it appropriate to what you want to achieve? B, is it effective, right? You know, those, those are always two big questions. So, second point is this. Frequently, when people claim that there is organising happening without organisations, they're wrong, right? What the digital environment does is it changes organisational form dramatically. And actually, whereas previously organisations in, in affecting certain things were very clearly delimited, identifiable. Memberships, subs, centralised organisation, bricks and mortar presence. Now it's going to be, you know, um, uh, take you can cut, right? That was an organisation. What did they have? They had a once a week meeting, offline meeting of what was effectively a coordinating group. A central bl- committee. Right. A blog, you know, a blog, yeah. A blog, subject to basically no democratic oversight, yeah. And that's, an, that's an uncontentious point. A blog, some social media assets, and really, you know, a very developed, very developed what you'd call media capital with quite eminent journalists, right? And that was enough to have a really effective organisation. That was an organisation. But, or the NCFC with the student stuff, right? So you don't need to have a bricks and mortar presence, full-time activists, all stuff to be uh, uh, an organisation. So this isn't oh, organising without organisations. Mm. These are organisations. They're not the ones of the 1990s, the 1980s, the 1970s. So people don't necessarily see them. Um, and so I think people look at the, like the 15M in Spain and go, 8 million people. It was this kind of, and this is an ideology. It's nonsense, right? It's kind of horizontalist ideology. They just came together. It was a swarm. It was a mob. Nobody controlled it. And it's like, look, this thing was there was a there was a very small and this is where activists and people who want to change the world need to take real inspiration and hope. You're looking at 25 people, me, in the January of 2011 you know, take like, you know like Southwark Tenants Union you know, organisations like this right, Navara you know, several little organisations and they say, look, we're going to do a demo, we're going to do a national set of demos a week before the Spanish election and they're going to end in like six or seven major cities, and we're going to build for that. And let's see what happens. And you get like a few large demos, right, in the week before. And, and then that becomes the 15M, the 15M, this huge, huge, huge movement, which has 
I mean, it's been effective and transformative in so many ways that's so difficult to map, right? Yes, it, it's it's destroyed Spanish social democracy, essentially, right? It's hastened the demise of the PSOE massively. It's essentially the... It's sedimentary activist networks, the activists left over from it, are, to some extent, the basis of Podemos. It's directed loads of activists, new activists, to uh, anti-eviction movements, mm. squatter movements, um, undocumented migrant movements. They've, take, they've drawn loads of activists and energy and resources, money, you name it, right, from the 15M. You know, uh, they discredited the, the kind of the consensus behind the Partido Popular. This is amazing. And how has it started? It was started by 25 people in organizations, tiny little organizations, but they were still organizations. And that tells you two things, right? Organizations in the 21st century digital environment are as important as ever they're as important as ever but the point is that this is a a great word organizational fecundity they look i mean they're you know you have so many different types of organizational form now appropriate to so many different tasks you know there may be one thing you only need a hashtag right you might just to, to achieve one particular end like let's say liberal thing like um page three you might just need a website, a Facebook group, uh, uh, an email list, and a hashtag. And that might be enough to achieve that particular end. Some of these would be ad hoc, very responsive, very quick, like the campaign that effectively saw the end of the news of the world, right? And some will be longer term. Okay, so how do we change? How do we get £20 an hour minimum wage in this country, right? And you'd say, well, that will take this, 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 an issue advocacy network, these unions, this, that, you know, it'd be much, much bigger. So I think the point is organisational forms need to be appropriate to the tasks they achieve. Will there be one overriding organisation that internalises lots of this? I'm unsure. I think what you will have, what will be necessary, I think it's probably the role of the political party in, in the 21st century, is things that allow clustering around issues. Right, So you'd say, look, we want to bring together this thing on race, this thing on migration, this thing on pay, this thing on housing. Uh, you know, Parties will inevitably become issue advocacy networks, be very flexible. So then I think party membership is not going to look like what it did in the, in the 20th century. It's going to look very, very different. It's not going to be bounded by a set of ideological claims as much. I think there'll be, there'll be obviously abiding principles. <laughs> so if you think that we should live in a borderless world, if you'd like to see the, you know, the socialisation, the means of production, etc., etc., then you know, clearly those people should act in concert with one another. But there's no reason why they can't say, let, let's abolish prisons with a, with, with a network of prison abolitionists who may include radical liberals, right? I mean, to sort of to sort of discount that seems silly to me. Mm. Um, and I think that's how, I mean, that's how change worked before the 20th century. I think that's how it worked in the future. I think, again, in this respect, the 20th century was a big outlier. Interesting. Um, we don't have much time left. Mm. And there's sort of much, much to talk about. I guess I guess what I would say is that the reason I'm addressing this is that I, I've, you know, I, I, I'm very wary of a kind of high politics. I think, you know, low politics where, at, where it's at, I think, you know. Uh, but I am increasingly convinced the need to think more widely and think sort of, and think in general terms. So, you know, I... I this is, in one sense, dipping my feet into the water in that in that way. I mean, whatever. Um, so, you know, and it's one of the dangers, I think. You know, one of the reasons I've resisted this, that there's a history in the communist movement of, 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 of people thinking that thinking means that one should, you know, be in charge of things and lead things. And, you know, um, movements led by, by thinkers or intellectuals is always, I think, a bad thing. Uh, it tends to lead to sort of paranoia, narcissism, over-identification. Right. Even the Black Panthers, right? They yeah. were fantastic, but wow, what happened to their leadership, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we could cite endless yeah. endless numbers of, of cases. But so in, in terms of, you know, given that the theme of the show has been sort of strategy mm. in, in the most general sense, um, 
it seems to me that there are two kind of external events. Let's let's take for granted that that we do the kind of workplace organisation that I think we need to do. Mm. Um, and that, that isn't something one should take for granted, but let's take it as, as for granted that we think that's a thing that should be done. Mm. Uh, above and beyond that, it seems to me that for a communist political movement, um, there are two moments that are particularly useful. One is an unexpected systemic endogenous shock within capitalism, i.e. a financial crisis yeah. with exposure and contagion. Mm. And those are going to come. They're going to come in Europe as well as China, Brazil, the US, yeah. whatever. So the question that there, I guess, and we have five minutes left, mm. is you know, how we failed to respond to the last one, how about next time, and how do we deal with the other thing that is of real use to us, which is um, crises of legitimacy within mm. the political system. And those are things I think we can generate. Do you want to comment on that first? Well, what I, uh, yeah, I mean, what I would say is that I don't know how we could have responded better to 2008. There was nothing. You know, I mean, how could you? There, was abs- mean, there, was, there were no structures. No. There were no, you know, really we haven't talked or barely begun to have purchase on you know, how we respond to crises that are systemic in nature, right? Mm. I mean, we, we can say that, you know, look, uh, this, this indicts the system in which we live, but the proposals we make instead seem to be, you know, relatively thin on the ground. And of course, you know, this is partly, uh, I think, a, a wise and uh, historically necessary uh, fear um, or... Uh, uh, disavowal of propositional politics, but I think that kind of um, refusal of propositional politics only goes so far. You know where that comes from is a history in the 20th century of you know, large mass strikes which refused to make demands. I think Italy, various strikes in France as well, um, and and these happen partly because they felt very transitional, right? They felt that there was no organisation, there was no general sense of a kind of political uh, uh, mode of articulating anything that, that could be adequate mm. to that kind of action. But it was always held to be you know, a, a matter of, a moment, of momentariness. It wasn't a question of withdrawal from the mm. political sphere mm-hmm. entirely. It was a question of uh, refusal until you have an adequate m- way of dealing with it. But th- that hasn't arrived, so I guess we need to think about that, right? I mean, if you look at, look, look at the crisis of 08 in this country, in the words of the Chancellor, then Chancellor of the Exchequer, Alistair Darling, we were hours away from money not being to come out, coming out of ATMs. You listen to a, an interview, Congressman Kanjorski on C-SPAN, type into YouTube, Kanjorski 2008. It's just, I mean, we were so close to this, you know, we were, we were really close to complete collapse. Really, really close. And I think it's only when, it's only when the Treasury decides with American International Group AIG that they, I mean, they, they did things they never thought they'd ever have to do, ideologically. Um, okay, maybe people are slagging me off. I don't know. Um, they did things they, never, they thought they'd never have to do, right? Okay, so all this complete collapse of capitalism, we're on the verge of money not coming out of ATMs. It would have been like 28 days later. What's the best the left had to offer? It's Chris Knott on the front of the sun with a pair of vampire fangs and the G20 meltdown. Yeah. Like, ah! This is the best the left had to do in terms of ideas, in terms of propaganda. The ideas were, yeah, like... Ah, we're we're going, we're going, we're losing it. And then some guy who just lost his academic position, who obviously was going through a bit of, you know, sort of personal sort of breakdown as well. You know? And this was kind of tied up with all this. And it's like, wow, you know, is that is that the best? Is that was that was that was effectively the response to 08. And actually, if you look at the political debate around before 2010 and what's happening now, I think the, the conversation has changed so much in this country. You know, the minimum wage just went up twenty pence, right? And you can you can almost smell. 
you can smell the CBI and the you know Institute of Directors. They are really frightened that if the next five years public opinion changes as much as the last five years, there's actually I think the basis for a political project that really well is antithetical to neoliberalism. Right? The question is how far does that go? And the last five, I think the last five years have actually dramatically changed. And actually, mm. we're beginning to see the formation of precisely these things that you're talking about. But we we had oh wait, I remember. Russian stock exchange shut down for two days. I think uh, it went down by 15% in one day, right? And I've said this anecdote before, and I had an Azari mate and I, from Azerbaijan, and I said, God, what's happening? Is it going to open again? When's it going to open? He said, Abi, like, you know, big brother, I don't know. Maybe it's not going to open again. Maybe this is it. He was like, hmm. you know, these people, like, they, were, they went through like 89, right? Yeah, they yeah, were, yeah, he was yeah. like, maybe, maybe we'll go back to communism or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know? And we, that, that was a discussion. There, there, there that was, was what it felt yeah. like, I mean, right? The, right and there, was yeah. nothing, there was nothing to latch on to. The other thing to say, I guess, though, in just a minute left or so, um, is to say, like, the, the, the other thing to watch out for is crisis of legitimacy. And that's going to that's gonna be on everyone's lips, I think, after May of this year. We don't have an adequate way of responding to it. It will get worse. We mm. see it, you know, crises of legitimacy often manifest as rage against corruption, which, mm. you know, the, for which the, 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 the anti communist solution is a solution proposed through the sphere of the nation, right? You get a coalition of all sorts of interests saying we're going to root out corruption. And it usually takes the form of rooting out some sort of minority group and its influence in government, but, but it's a danger. It's a danger. Oh, we have 20 seconds here, right? Yeah. Everybody's on about, oh, Greece, even Syriza goes, yeah, we're going to get rid of corruption. Greece and Italy, they've got no growth because of corruption. Right. Two fast growing economies in Europe. For, 45 to 73 Greece and Italy they were corrupt as hell mm. you can have high growth and corruption nothing to cor- anti-corruption movements are just ridiculous anyway James <laughs> yeah I mean it's to, to say that like look that's that's where we're going to have to have arguments about the legitimacy of, of, of political power is exactly as if people think it can be purified it can't and needs to be overthrown um, this has been Novara FM um, on that note uh, we will see you same time same place next week bye <laughs>